going to have you turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at chapter 3. And it's been my prayer, as I've told you, that as we go through the study of John and you encounter the book, that you will encounter the person. The book is about Jesus, and he's a marvelous person, unique. Nobody like him in history. Um, what we find here is one of the most famous conversations recorded in the Bible. A lot of conversations in the book of John, and, uh, but while there are a lot, this is one that, uh, that kicks it off, and for no other reason, by the time you get to John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, uh, we're not going to get there uh, quite yet this morning. But again, you think of a conversation, if you think of format and that sort of thing, how easy it is sometimes as you listen to a conversation just to find yourself... Uh, going into the back and forth, back and forth. And the issue in this conversation is the kingdom of God, the KOG. Uh, how, do you, how does somebody uh, know that they'll see the kingdom of God? How does somebody know that they'll enter the kingdom of God? How does that happen? Uh, but m- normally you think about narrative and you think drama, and this doesn't lay out like this. The, the genre here is way more like an epistle, a letter, where there's question and answer, question and answer, or the Socratic method, you know, uh, as you dabble into the, or the writings of Plato. And he talks about, you know, the, the Socratic method where somebody asks a question or Socrates asks a question, and then there's long answers and that sort of thing, like a question and answer, or even a catechism. But most stories, most narrative, you go, okay, there's story, and what emerges inside that story is some kind of tension. There's a danger, or there's an embarrassment, or there's a plot that's going to thicken. And here in this conversation, it's, uh, it's a pretty one-sided conversation, by the way, but the drama is this. Remember, it's about the kingdom of God. How's it? that somebody will see God's kingdom? How is it that somebody will enter into God's kingdom? And the drama here is actually the surprise. Uh, Even the offense when Jesus talks about it, that when he says, let's talk about the kingdom of God, and this is what this conversation is about, is about the kingdom of God, that Nicodemus is on the other end of this conversation and it's way outside of his frame of reference. And so it's one of the most important questions that you'd ever conceive of is how is it that I enter into this life with God? All right, so let's look at it. We're going to look at this morning the first 15 verses. And this is God's word. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we share your word together, we pray that we would understand it rightly, that we would receive it well, and that our hearts and our minds would turn to you, that the, that the truth of the gospel would be bright and clear, and that Uh, For those who need to receive Jesus, that that's exactly what they would do. And for those uh, who have been walking with Jesus, that they would see him clearly better um, to be a light in the world. But mainly what we pray for is just that you would bless, that we would understand your word, receive it, and see Jesus for who he is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we started off and we said, if you just frame this, if you're going to understand John 3... You have to realize that what's going on here is a conversation. And the conversation is really just between two parties. There may be people with Nicodemus. There may be people with Jesus. But as it plays out, there are two primary people in the conversation. And it's Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus approaches Jesus. And it's a conversation because of what uh, Jesus brings up. It's a conversation about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And in the first couple of verses, what we, uh, you know, what becomes clear is what Nicodemus sees in Jesus and maybe what he doesn't see in Jesus. Uh, He's the man who approaches Jesus, and what we find out about Nicodemus is that he's Jewish. Not surprising, Jesus is Jewish. They're in a Jewish context. He's a Pharisee. Uh, He's a ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a leader, and later on, Jesus is going to refer to him, verse 10, as the teacher of Israel, right? This is a guy, if you would think about somebody who's sort of an elite uh, teacher, theologian guy, right? He's, he's going to be a guy in terms of the understanding of people in that sphere. He's going to be the best of the best. So he's something of, um, you know, if you're thinking about the exemplary person to come and engage Jesus on some matter of theology or truth, Nicodemus is a good guy for that. Um, there's a little note there in the first couple of verses that he came to Jesus, John says, by night. That's kind of interesting, right? Came by night. And there are different theories. And just to be clear, we don't know for sure how this played out because John doesn't give us uh, those particular details. But some, some scholars say, well, what this is, it's a little reminiscent detail by John. John was there, John the apostle, the guy who wrote the book. Um, and that he just remembers, oh, this conversation happened to be at night and that sort of thing. Well, 
Okay, maybe it is possible, but the reality is that these narratives are so efficient that uh, you wouldn't just put in a detail unless it helped carry a little bit of weight in the story, right, in terms of what happened. There's probably some significance there. Others would point out, well, Nicodemus is the kind of guy, he's, listen, he's an elite theologian, and theologians stay up late, uh, which is still true today. Uh, theologians stay up, day, uh, up late, and they're reading, and they're talking, and they're debating with other theologians and that sort of thing. And so it's just sort of par for the course that, uh, you know, Nicodemus is a stay-up-late guy, and, uh, you know, he's a night owl, and Jesus is too, and so they're having the conversation then. Um, most likely, what Nicodemus is doing is he's using night as a cover so that when he approaches Jesus, and again, we don't know this for sure, but when he approaches Jesus, there's not going to draw a lot of attention, that it'll be a conversation that's largely between uh, Jesus and him. Now, there are different reasons for that. Why might you want the cover of night? Well, it might be because you're afraid of what other people think. That's true. That's a possibility. It also might be because you want to enter into kind of a negotiation or a backroom deal, and you don't want the... It's really hard to negotiate the case in public, right? If there's a negotiation going on, the worst thing that you can do between two parties is leak it out to where everybody knows what the negotiations are, right? And so maybe he's approaching Jesus, and he wants the cover of night because maybe in the, the frame of things... It would be good to have Jesus on his side. Who knows? But perhaps the best clue in a commentator, a guy named D. Carson, a very good commentator. So maybe the best clue is in thinking about how John uses darkness and night. Uh, John uses pictures all the time, and one of those is light and contrasted with darkness. And almost always, whenever he uses darkness or night, it's a... It alludes to, it's a symbol of, a representative of moral and spiritual darkness. And so what happens is we see this guy, and from a human perspective, Nicodemus is probably this exemplary guy. But he's coming by night, and what John means to say is, he probably thinks he knows more than he knows. His darkness is greater than he knows. He doesn't see what he thinks he sees. And um, so what does he see? Well, it tells Jesus, you know, you do these signs, right? These powerful signs. By the way, not just Jesus' friends recognize that Jesus did these signs. Jesus' enemies did. And they, they had this debate about what to make of it. What does this mean? See, just somebody acting for God or, or whatnot. His enemies later would go so far as to say, we can't dispute that he does these powerful signs. We just say he does it by some kind of an evil power. But anyway, Nicodemus, for his part, sees these powerful signs and he thinks, well, listen, God is demonstrating his presence through Jesus and he's going to do something maybe great in our time, which how exciting is that, right? To see somebody, looks like he has a powerful ministry and God's going to do, and these people were starving for that. God's going to do something powerful in our time and amazing in our time. Um, but he roots that in seeing the signs. Now, that can be good or bad because it's what the signs are there for, right? If you see a sign that says, eight miles to Laurel. Now, I don't know why you'd want to go to Laurel, but if you're on your way to Laurel and it says eight, the sign tells you, okay, that's, that's ahead. That's back that way, right? 
Um, a sign says stop, you read the sign and it helps you navigate. Or a sign says, you know, this city is here. When, um, when John uses the word sign, what he's saying is that God is, God is laying something out where people can read the sign and see something of what he's doing. Now the problem is that these signs aren't an end in themselves. Like some people were drawn to Jesus because they saw these powerful signs and what they wanted to do was just see the, the magic show, right? But if there's a difference between, say, entering the city of your dreams or just hugging the sign that says this is your city. And, uh, or other people would use signs as a way to really cover their, um, their unbelief so that Jesus would do signs and they would demand more and they would demand more. Oh, yeah, do this, do that. And that sort of thing. But the signs were there to be read. They're, they signify something. And Nicodemus, again, for his part, sees, the powerful sign, sees these powerful signs and says there's something about Jesus. And what does he say about this? You are a teacher. Come to us from God. And that's packed. Because it's not just, hey, you're a good teacher. A lot of people could qualify for that. A lot of people, you could say, well, this guy is really uh, articulate or he's really smart or he's very insightful. A lot of people could qualify for that. What he's saying is, I'm connecting the signs that you do and you're a teacher that God sent to us. You've come to us from God. That's what he sees in Jesus. But what he doesn't yet see in Jesus is something more than that. I mean, it is true in so far as it goes that Jesus is a teacher come from God. We talk about this every once in a while. It's actually no compliment to Jesus to say he's the greatest teacher that you've ever heard, if he's more than that, right? That he's a prophet, if he's more than that. Um, if he's more than that, then it probably doesn't do him justice. So, or, uh, so those first two verses, what we see is, what Nicodemus sees in Jesus, he approaches him. He's the one who initiates the conversation. And so, listen, you're a teacher from God. It's a pretty good compliment, but not everything. So what, how does this teacher come from God respond? Look at verse 3 with me. Jesus answered to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a little bit to unpack, and that'll help frame the, the rest, but almost sounds like a non sequitur, right? Hey, I think you're a teacher from God, so, and it's as though Jesus says, all right, if you think I'm a teacher sent from God, let's handle foundational 101 type stuff, and we've got to handle this up front. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom of God, the most helpful thing to say starting off is that Nicodemus and Jesus have a shared definition for the most part of what this is. They're talking about the same thing, uh, namely as a future thing that God will do. Okay, so they're both thinking about this future time where God will reign in, uh, in this different way. So right now, God is sovereign. Everybody's subject to his reign. This would be true in Nicodemus' day. It's true in our day that God is sovereign. Everybody's subject to his reign. And everybody is in that kingdom, if you want to refer to it like that, whether you know it, whether you like it. You don't have to like it, and you're part of that kingdom, okay? Whether you know it, you don't have to know it, and you're part of that kingdom. But there's going to be a day in the future. At the end of history, there's going to be the advent, uh, this advent of God's kingdom presided over by a son of David. 
the Lord's servant, even the Lord himself. There's going to be a resurrection and God's kingdom will be installed and it's going to go on forever. And the, and the best question that a person could ask is, well, okay, do I have a share in that kingdom? Me, where I stand, am I going to have a part in the kingdom of God? Now, Nicodemus believes this, and Jesus uh, is talking to him about that, that, hey, there's, there's this future kingdom of God that's coming that is going to be the kingdom of all kingdoms. It's going to go on forever, and it's that reality that Jesus is talking to him about, the installation of this eschatological reality, the KOG, the coming uh, kingdom of God in the future going on for eternity. Do I have a share in that? Now, here's the... Nicodemus is going to make an assumption based on his cultural and religious context, okay? Next thing in your handout. Given who he is as a Jewish man and a leader and that sort of thing, his assumption is going to be this. All Jews are included. So if you asked him, if he's, if he's an average Jewish man, right? Listen, are Jews going to be a part of the kingdom of God? Well, of course they're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. I mean, the Jews are God's people. Um, and if you pressed it a little bit, like every Jew, well, yeah, every Jew. But I mean, if you pressed them harder, well, what about the apostates? Like, no, not people who, you know, they showed themselves not to be true Jews, and so they've abandoned the faith. What about truly wicked, wicked people? No, because they, you know, they undermine true, uh, you know, being the people of God and that sort of, but I mean, if you were a an incredibly wicked person, or you were an apostate, you weren't going to have a share. But otherwise, if you were Jewish, you were going to be in. And if Nicodemus is anything, he's an elite Jew. He's that ethnically and religiously. He's a ruler and teacher and all that. And so his assumption is going to be, I'm in. I'm obviously in. No question. I mean, it's mine by birthright. It's mine by standing. It's mine by virtue and accomplishment. And Jesus goes right after that assumption. It hurts his feelings, to tell you the truth. Now, maybe you walked through the door today and you assumed, you know, we sang that song about coming to Jesus. Well, maybe some people need to do that, but I mean, I don't need to come to Jesus. And Nicodemus does come to Jesus by night, and he's probably thinking this is kind of a peer-to-peer conversation. And his assumption that he's just as incredibly okay as anybody could ever be, Jesus goes right after that assumption. Let's talk about the kingdom of God. And so in verse 3, he says, I'm going to see the kingdom of God. A person has to be born again. So see it. Now, verse 5, he's going to talk about entering the kingdom of God. Uh, Western people do this way too much. Sometimes we look at two things like that. And what's the difference between entering the kingdom of God or seeing the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of God? He's really talking about the same thing. So how do you know that you're going to be a part of it? How do you know that you're going to belong to it? Be alive in that world uh, and everything. And so in that verse 3, he starts off with truly, truly, and Jesus says this a lot, and he says it a lot in this conversation. When he says, truly, truly, what he's, he's giving Nicodemus um, uh, a marker to say, this is really important. You need to emphasize this, I'm, right? 
So I'm going to highlight this, not because I really mean it this time, but so that you can know that this is important. The, the kingdom of God, if you're going to see it, if you're going to enter it, you're going to have to be born again. Um, or that phrase can also mean born from above. Something has to happen in you that isn't automatically there. Something has to happen in your life you don't have access to on your own. If you're going to see God's kingdom, something has to happen in you that's actually way beyond you. Um, just like in this world, how do you know that you're a part of it? How did that happen, right? You were born into it. You were made alive to it. And so you belong to it. You see it. You entered into it. You experience it and that sort of thing. But he says, listen, when it comes to God's kingdom is another dimension. And if you're going to uh, be a part of that, you're going to have to be born into that so that you can see it and enter it and be made alive to it. Right? If you're going to have access to it like you belong there, something's going to have to happen in you that isn't just automatically there. Okay. Western ears, sorry about this, but we have to bring up this kind of line of demarcation. Do you get the exclusivity of it? These are the words of Jesus. And when he says, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be born again. Unless you've been born again, no one can see it. It's the only way that you can do this. The implication is spiritual. You don't have the life of God in you. Now, get this. If he's, I know what I've done. So if Jesus said that to me, I think I'd probably be like, yeah, okay, I get that. Okay? And I know too many of you. I know some of what you've done. And if, uh, if Jesus said that to you, you should probably be like, yeah, I, I get that. Nicodemus is probably a better, he's a, probably a better person than I am. And good chance he's a better person than you are. And Jesus is saying this to him. Like, listen, you don't have the life of God in you. You're gonna, if you're going to uh, see God's kingdom, you're gonna have to, there's going to have to be a new birth in you. There's gonna have to be, you're going to have to be made alive, brought to life to something that's just a dimension that you don't have access to that's beyond you. And the way he describes it, beginning in verse 4, is this birth is going to happen, have to happen of the Spirit Notice uh, Nicodemus' initial response in verse 4 is, how can this happen? Um, it's not as crude maybe as you think. He's, I think what Nicodemus is doing here, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It is a crass phrase, but what he's telling Jesus is, listen, I think what you're saying is absurd. He doesn't believe him. So connect the dots. Jesus, you're a teacher. Come to us from God. Very next line. What you just said is absurd, okay? There's some tension uh, in the conversation already. So Nicodemus is wrong not to believe, but he is right to say, what you're describing is impossible because it is impossible. How can a person be born again? I mean, you get, do you have that on you anywhere? Do you leave that in your other wallet? You know, you're, you're the one that held your born again power? So Jesus issues the same demand in verse 5. He doubles down, you might say, truly, truly. So he's emphasizing it again. I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
So he uses a, a different phrase, but it's synonymous with born again. Born of water and spirit. Whatever else born of water and spirit means, it's going to mean the same thing as born again. Okay? Now, there are different theories on that, and most all of them hinge on the word water. What does it mean to be born of water and spirit? And so there are, like I said, different theories. Maybe what Jesus is talking about is a physical birth and then a spiritual birth. Maybe what Jesus is talking about is baptism. I don't think he's talking about either one of those there. Back in uh, Ezekiel, and you can turn there if you like, Ezekiel 36. Um, If you don't want to, that's okay, because I'm going to read it verbatim. A few verses there. God says there's a future time, and what he's going to do is he's going to do something new. And it's going to change God's people's experience of being made alive to him and walking with him. Now listen to this. God says in Ezekiel, I'm going to do this in a future time. And this is what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That I will clean you, I will sprinkle you clean with water and put my spirit within you and give you a heart of flesh. And, uh, you know, this, you're going to have this new spirit in you. I think when, when God talks about that back in Ezekiel, and Jesus says, if you're going to have any share in God's kingdom, you're going to have to be born of water and spirit. He's talking about the fulfillment or the coming to reality of this passage in, a, in Ezekiel in your life. Now, get this. How does that happen? It's not something you carry on you. This is something that God does in a person. It takes the work of God. Notably, the very next chapter in Ezekiel is the famous Valley of Dry Bones. And Ezekiel goes to preach a sermon, and he preaches it to people who are dead. Um, This is a good Sunday, but there have been Sundays, right? Every once in a while where you're like, little Valley of the Dry Bones thing going on here, right? But not, not really. I mean, he's preaching to a graveyard. And talk about absurd, right? You know, you walk out there and you go like, all right, everybody, I'm going to pronounce God's word. And you know what happens? Uh, They come to life. It's not a magic trick. It's the power of God through his word. God is making them alive. God is doing that in, in that person. Okay? Emphasis on the God part, not the that person part. How does somebody go from death to life? Again, it's not something you carry on your person. A do-over card, a reset card. This is something that God himself does in the person. I am going to sprinkle you clean with water. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to change everything about you. And what Jesus says is, listen, if you're going to enter God's world, you're going to have to do that. All right, so we're going to have to move along a little bit. Verse 6 Um, Jesus uh, expands on this, right? Where he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And what he's, he's understanding this by thinking in categories, like produces like. In the physical world, you know, the the physical things come from physical things. But it's the, it's the same in the, in in the spiritual dimension, right? If there's going to be a spiritual life, a spiritual reality that emerges, there's going to have to be something spiritual uh, that's generated in that person. 
And, um, and, and, you know, he rebukes him in verse 7. Don't marvel. Nicodemus doesn't believe Jesus. But in verse 8, he says, he talks about wind and spirit. Those are the same word in the Greek. And he talks about how it moves where it will, but yet just you don't control it, but you can detect its effects. You know, where Nicodemus says, how does this work? And what Jesus is telling him is just because you don't do it doesn't mean that it's not being done. Just because you're not the one who generates this life in you doesn't mean it's not happening. You can detect the power of God at work, the Holy Spirit at work, doing what only God can do. Okay, so it's going to be of the Spirit. You know, you're right that it's impossible being born again like this. It takes the Spirit to act to bring about this new birth. But the second part of it, is not that it's just that this birth happens of the Spirit. It's accomplished by Jesus, verses 9 through 15. So again, verse 9, uh, Nicodemus objects again. How can these things be? Uh, there's unbelief. There's the failure to understand. In verse 10, Jesus rebukes him. Listen, you're like, you're, the, you're this doctor of philosophy. You're this doctor of theology, and you don't get this. And so what Jesus is going to tell him, here's the narrow arc or the short arc of Jesus' argument to him. I'm telling you firsthand, I know what I'm talking about, and you don't believe. You want these deep, profound things, and I can't get you through the 101 class. I can't get you through the first lecture, okay? So in verse 11, he says this, and we'll do a quick thing and land on the end of the passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm a first-hander. I know what I'm talking about. I've seen what I'm talking about, and you haven't. And yet you still don't believe. And then in verse 12, he says, if I have told you uh, earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And what he's saying there is, uh, if you don't even believe the basic things about what it takes to be a part of the kingdom of God now, why would we bother going into the deeper things? You don't even believe this very initial aspect of it. How are you going to believe the greater things of life and reality in the kingdom forever? And in verse 13, uh, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite designations for himself. So who knows? Who has? If you're going to get information from somebody... Wouldn't you like to get information from somebody who's a good source? And what Jesus says is, I'm a source like none other. I'm here, but I'm from there. Right? You want to know what there is like? That's my home address. That's where I get mail. Right? I mean, that's where I grew up. That's where I'm from, like forever. Right? So that's who I am. And I can speak of that because that's who I am and that's where I'm from. Now, all of that lands on verses 14 and 15. I think verses 16 and follow, uh, following are a commentary on, on verses 14 and 15. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is going to give him a picture of how all this works. How is it that you're going to have this rebirth and it's going to be accomplished by the Spirit or, or done by the Spirit? What he says is, it's going to be me and I'm going to accomplish it. And he, and he gives him a picture and he points him back to Numbers, the book of Numbers. And there's an episode there where 
Um, I mean, it's hard to believe, but the people of God grumble against God, right? It's like constantly going on. The way it's recorded in the book of Numbers, it says the people became impatient upon the way, on the way, right? It's a little bit of a euphemism, and they spoke against God and Moses. It's never a safe thing to do, to, you know, like to look at God and go, you know, I think you're a moron. Not safe, okay? Don't do it. And so anyway, that's what the people of, of, of God do. They're like, you don't know what you're doing. Why did you bring us out here so that we could die and all that? And so the Lord does something. He sends these fiery serpents, it says, and they start fighting the people, and they die. And so the, the remaining living people turn to Moses and, Moses and say, we've sinned. Like, yeah, you think? Right? You know, you don't do that. And so they say, you know, plead with us. And so Moses does that. Moses prays to God. And God says, here's what I want you to do. Um, it's this kind of mercy that's going to be the kind of mercy that people will remember. I want you to create a serpent. Moses built it out of bronze. Put it on a pole and then hold it up. Because as they're making their journey, there are all these snakes there. Um, you know, Sort of like Indiana Jones, but without all the, the fun, uh, without the background music, right? And so, so hold up the pole with the, the bronze serpent on it. And when people are, have been bitten, they can just look at that and they'll be saved. They'll live. Okay, now that's, first of all, it's not very scientific, right? So that what happens is that, but, you know, you're not going to look unless you believe. One of the things that helps you believe is getting bit by a snake, right? Um, you know, pull out your Bowie knife and suck the poison out or, you know, look at the serpent that's been raised, the, the symbol of that. And so Nicodemus is a Jew. He knows the story. Everybody knows the story that there's all this danger around and they've been bitten. And if they'll just look up and believe, they'll be saved. This, this thing that's been raised up. And what Jesus says is, as Moses lifted that up, I've got to be lifted up too. And there's going to be an exaltation of being lifted up. But Jesus' exaltation, as it were, is the cross. He's going to bear that sin. And the purpose is, at the end of verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you might... Back in the, that original time in Numbers, you might look at a bronze serpent and you might live a little while longer after you've been bitten. And what Jesus is saying is, this is different, qualitatively different. When I'm lifted up with the work that I'm going to do on the cross, if you set your eyes on me and you look and believe, you have eternal life. So he may have offended Nicodemus by telling him what he told him about the kingdom of God. But he told Nicodemus something greater than he could have ever imagined hearing. Listen, you don't have what it takes to attain this, but Jesus will accomplish it. So this is about the kingdom of God and how do you enter. There's got to be a new birth, and that's got to be done by the Spirit, accomplished by Jesus. Let me give you briefly three themes to emphasize these are good for us to think about in terms of the Gospel of John, but they're also good for you to think about in your own life. So, like I said, three and briefly. The first theme I want you to think about is denseness, right? I, listen, for as smart as Nicodemus is, he's a pretty dumb guy. And it doesn't stop here. When you read the Samaritan woman at the well, 
uh, I mean, she's really dumb. She's about as dumb a woman as you'd come across. It sounds offensive for me to say that, right? But then all the guy disciples follow up, and they're at least as dumb as she is. I mean, right? She just doesn't see. And this denseness is this kind of operational thing where they're just so obtuse. It happens over and over and over again in all these conversations. People are clueless. They're dark and they're dumb and they don't get it and they're miles away. They're a universal way from God. Listen, even after you believe, you live below what you know. You find that out, right? Like you know these certain things, but experientially the way you live it out, you, you're not as, it's hard to, to live uh, according to the light you have even. But uh, if it could happen to Nicodemus and it happens over and over again, that what you find with people is that they just don't see it. So, so the clue here, for your own, I mean, it helps you understand the book because, again, it happens again and again. But it helps you understand yourself. That your assumption that you think you know the deep things of God, I'm not saying don't dig in and learn and that sort of thing. I'm just saying that uh, you're probably not as, as bright and insightful as you think you are. You know, none of us is. You're going to need more than, ta-da, right? You know, yourself, ta-da. Uh, it's hard to stick the landing, let's say. Number two, grace. Denseness, people who don't see over and over and over again, and that's deep, they're clueless, they're in the dark. But grace, and you might say, well, I don't see the word there. Right, right. How, well, how do you come into the kingdom of God? How's that happen? Do you do it? Like, no, God has to do this for you. You're so irreparably gone that this is impossible. It only happens by God deciding to do this good and this powerful thing in your life. You're not alive to his world. He brings you alive into it, right? This is not by your power or attainment or merit or anything. It's all his. It's all his grace. It's like when I read the call to worship that you could be born... Not of all these other things, but born of God. And that happens by Him, not by you. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to know God, it's not going to happen by your birthright or your attainment or your strategy. It's going to happen because God's been good to you. And it's all going to have been Him. And then number three is belief. Over and over again, John points us to believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, right? Nicodemus' great problem is that he doesn't believe. Jesus gets after him for this. You don't believe. You've got good testimony in front of you. You're getting that from a first-hander right here, somebody who lives there, and you don't even believe that, right? Showing you these signs, and Nicodemus' only hope is that he'll believe. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is part of the plan. Nobody is saved without this happening. This has to happen. He must be lifted up or you have no hope. But when he is, cast your eyes on him and believe. So why is this happening? So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and see and enter the kingdom of God. Spells it out even more in John 3.16, but that's another sermon. There is hope. But there's only one. What do you believe? Let's pray. Father, if we say anything, let us just say that we're so thankful that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
So the Son of Man, so Jesus, was lifted up to bear our sins. And to us, that's um, it's humbling, but it's also glorious, and we praise you for that, and we're so grateful for Jesus, for a powerful salvation. So help us to live as grateful people. And we invite anybody who doesn't know Jesus into that. We're not great, but Jesus is. And we invite everybody into that to know you through the accomplishment of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, to see this like new life, uh, uh, being born again, something that only you can do so that we can become your children. Do that for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.